2006, November 20th. Today is Lecture 39, The Moons of Jupiter, which will begin in just a moment. Okay. All right. So homework number five is coming around. It's due a week from Wednesday. So you have over the Thanksgiving and then through the next week, since we're going to have a short week this week, with uh, Thursday and Friday being the Thanksgiving holiday, there will be lectures on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and that material will show up on the final. Uh, so, while these are coming around, this is the last of the homeworks. So let me remind you, homework is worth 15% of your grade. So it counts basically the equivalent of an in-class test. So it's a, a way to elevate the grade over just giving testing, and it's a pretty interesting question. Yes? Will December 29th be our last class? December, December 29th? Oh, don't scare me. December 1st is our last class. Oh, Friday, so December 1st. I didn't see any more. You outlined it on, Oh, that's because there's two more lectures in the next unit. The, 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 this section we're talking about will end a week from Wednesday, but there will be two more lectures following that. They just, they're actually linked off the main page. Unit 7 on extrasolar planets. Okay. So let's get going for today. We've already finished our sort of grand tour of the solar system by looking at the eight major planets, the four terrestrial planets and the four Jovian planets. And now we want to take a little bit closer look at some of the details that we walked over. In particular, I want to talk today about the moons of Jupiter. We're going to be, we've, we've, we skipped over the moon systems of Jupiter and Saturn. In many ways, the moon systems of Jupiter and Saturn are almost miniature solar systems in miniature, but they bear the properties of the place in which they were formed beyond the frost line in the orbit of Jupiter and Saturn. So we're going to take a look at these worlds in detail. They were actually quite surprising. People thought the moons were kind of just going to be boring old rocks or ice balls. And they turned out to be quite fascinating, so they're a topic all of their own. So the key ideas for today's class is to simply state a few basic facts. Jupiter currently has 63 known moons. This count is almost guaranteed to go up as people push deeper and deeper and be able to find the smaller and smaller rocks that are circling Jupiter. Of these, the four most famous are the four giant moons of Jupiter, which in fact are the same four moons that were discovered by Galileo with his telescope in 1610. Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. These are the four Galilean moons. All of these are very large objects. They're more than 3,000 kilometers in diameter. They're spherical and they're differentiated. So they actually would qualify as planets, not just dwarf planets, but actual honest-to-God planets, were they orbiting the sun instead of just orbiting around Jupiter. But because they're orbiting Jupiter, they are moons. Of these, all of them are fascinating, but two of them in particular draw particular attention to themselves. Io turns out to be volcanically active. It was highly unexpected, and we'll say a bit about that. It's the first of three places we've discovered in the last decade in the solar system where the moons are actually geologically active, even though they're small bodies. The second has gets our attention is Europa, which has an active ocean possibly behind the ice, underneath the ice layers of its surface. And this is one of the places in the solar system that people might think, because there may be liquid water, may be one of the places to search for life. And finally, the other moons are 59 smaller moons. They make up the difference. They're all small. The size difference is really big. The contrast begins at 200 kilometers and down. All of them are irregular in shape. None of them are spherical, in fact. And they're all undifferentiated bodies. So it's a fundamental physical difference we want to look out for. And we're going to see these differences recapitulated as we walk our way out 
to the outer parts of the solar system. There really is a difference between being big and small, and it has to do with the role of gravity in shaping the object. So today we're going to take our first look at small bodies, but we're going to concentrate on a very specific class of small bodies, those small bodies which orbit in a sort of miniature solar system around the planet Jupiter. Well, just again, a statement of bare facts. The current count of moons around Jupiter is 63. This is a tremendous change. All through the time when I was growing up, the number of Jupiter moons was around 10 or 11, and then it suddenly jumped to 12 with the discovery of a 12th moon, and there it sat for a long time until the Voyager spacecraft and Pioneer spacecraft flew by the, by the planet, and with the advent of electronic cameras, it's been possible to actually survey the space around uh, Jupiter looking for satellites. Now, it turns out there is sort of a maximum radius <coughs> around which that you can expect to find a moon actually in orbit around Jupiter. And that has to be the radius at which, beyond that, tides from the other objects in the solar system become basically of order the orbital speed, orbital tidal influence on speed becomes of order the orbital speed of the moon itself. As you move further away from the central body, the orbital speed falls off following Kepler's, a modification of Kepler's third law. As you go further away, you get slower and slower. Eventually, a small change in speed due to the tidal fluctuation in the solar system is the same size as your orbital speed and you break away. So that defines kind of an outer radius at which you expect to find moons. And so what people have been doing for the last many years is surveying out to that volume around Jupiter to find the captured satellites. And if you drew them all together, this is the basic group that you would see. It's a tremendous number of orbits here. But the ones to really pay attention to is Jupiter's right down here in the middle of this diagram. And these sort of purple magenta curves are the four large moons of Jupiter. These are the four moons we now know as the Galilean satellites because they were discovered by Galileo Galilei with his telescope from Florence in 1610. All of these are very large moons. They're bigger than 3,000 kilometers in diameter. They're spherical and they're differentiated bodies, which means the heavy stuff is sunk to the middle and the lighter stuff is floated up to the top just in the same way that the Earth, Moon, Venus, Mars, and other terrestrial planets are differentiated in that sense. But they form a small compact group down in the middle. The rest of the moons of Jupiter are actually quite small. The size difference is quite, quite a big contrast. Everything of the four moons is bigger than 3,000 kilometers a second. The other five are all smaller than 200 kilometers a second. And they get down to sort of kilometer size these days. They're all going to be irregular in shape. Below about 200 kilometers in diameter, the amount of gra self-gravity that the object has, basically the gravity of every part of the planet pulling on every other planet, it has, is smaller than the individual rigid body forces that make up the rock or ice that this body is, is composed of. And as a consequence, gravity cannot shape it into a sphere. It can't melt the interior. If you don't have a molten interior, you can't get it differentiating. And so these tend to stay in a regular shape. They look kind of potato-like or like sort of heavily cratered, dirty potatoes. And they don't have heavy stuff at the middle, light stuff at the top. They're kind of still a mix of stuff, what we'll often refer to as an aggregate. So this makes up the dominant population of these. Very likely what the differences are have to do with the inner large moons probably formed out of the initial disk of material that was encircled Jupiter while the planet itself was forming. And so in many ways, this is an analog of the solar nebula of the debris, disk of debris that formed around the sun out of which the planets formed. Jupiter was big enough to actually build its own miniature disk within a disk 
when it formed, and out of that disk, material condensed out and formed the giant inner moons. The outer irregular moons, some of them are on very elliptical orbits. You can see the orbits crisscrossing up here, whereas the inner orbits don't cross each other at all. And some of them actually go retrograde. They're actually moving in the opposite sense of orbit as the other moons. This means that these larger, these smaller bodies, these smaller regular bodies in these large orbits were probably captured into those orbits by the gravity of Jupiter. There's lots of ways you can do the capture trick with gravity, but by and large, Jupiter is the 800-pound gorilla of the solar system. It runs around. It's got the biggest gravity. It's got the biggest orbital energy of any planet in the solar system. In fact, it has more mass than all the rest of the planets combined. And so as a consequence, as Jupiter moves around the solar system, it ha its gravity can do two things. It can scatter asteroids or comets out of the solar system. It can scatter asteroids or comets into the inner solar system. Or it can even capture those asteroids or comets into orbit around itself and make it a moon. So we expect, not surprisingly, this very large gravity of Jupiter is going to gather basically a large amount of junk. And so the smaller moons are really are going to be mostly junk, for the, for, by and large. Here's a picture of some of these smaller moons. These are actually the innermost four. These are ones that were imaged by a combination of Voyager and the Galileo satellite. Phoebe, Amalthea, Adrastea and Metis are the four inner moons. You can see the sizes here. The largest of these is Amalthea. It's an irregular cratered body, 125 by 64 kilometers. To put some sense of scale on that, here's a map or a drawing of the outline of Long Island, this little island off the eastern coast of the United States. So Long Island is somewhat larger in extent than, oh, say, a moon like Adrastea, which could actually very comfortably fit within the uh, confines of the city of Columbus. It's only 12 by 7 kilometers in size. It would be kind of inconvenient to have it there, but it is quite small. And all the rest of the bodies are like this or smaller. Moons around Jupiter are now known down to about the one kilometer size. So we're talking about a moon that could easily fit on top of the OSU campus. That's about the size we're getting down to in the surveys of the Jupiter system. But of course, what's going to interest us today in more detail are the giant Galilean moons. And these are, in order, Ganymede, Callisto, Io, and Europa, in order of size from largest to smallest. Ganymede is more than 5,200 kilometers in diameter. It's actually bigger than the planet Mercury, and it would be a planet all by itself if it weren't for the fact that it was stuck in orbit around Jupiter. It also makes it the largest moon in the solar system. Callisto is actually the third largest moon in the solar system. There's a moon of, of Saturn, Titan, that's bigger than it. And then two smaller moons among the Galileans, Io and Europa, which Io is slightly bigger than and Europa is slightly smaller than the Earth's moon. So I've pasted these pictures together in their proper proportions of size, and I've put a picture of the Earth's moon next to them in its proper proportions. So the moon would fit roughly number four in order from Ganymede, Callisto, Io, and Europa. As it happens, these two, outer, these two bigger moons are also the outer moons of the Galilean system, and Io and Europa form the inner moons of the system. They're very different worlds all by themselves. This is now looking down on the orbits of the moons. We again have Jupiter here. Now Jupiter is actually drawn to scale with respect to the orbit. So you can see Jupiter River is really big. It's about 11.2 Earth diameters across, and the moons are in order outwards from Jupiter, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. And they all orbit on almost perfectly circular orbits, 
and all in the same right-hand set. So they all know about the orbit of each other, and that's the same sense of direction as the rotation of Jupiter. So this is a clue to their formation. These things formed out of the same rotating disk of material, most of which got sucked into the bulk of the body of Jupiter when Jupiter was growing. It sucked up the material from the disk, and it kind of swirled into a little miniature nebula around itself, and out of that nebula condensed around various what we'd call planetesimals formed the nucleation sites that built up slowly these little miniature planets, little miniature moons around Jupiter, much in the same way that the planets were growing around the sun. The big difference, of course, is that Jupiter here is going to be pretty hot, but not as hot as the sun, so there is going to be sort of a miniature frost line involved. What we're going to expect, if they form together, is that the innermost moons would have been closer to the hot, proto, warmer proto-Jupiter, and so are likely to contain fewer ices and more rock than the outer moons, which are going to be collecting mostly icy material that's far away from the warm proto-Jupiter. The whole proto-Jupiter system is itself out at five astronomical units away from the sun, beyond the frost line in the place where there's ices and gas and volatiles. So we expect those to be incorporated into the general mix of materials out here. So everything was cold, except when you got close to the proto-Jupiter, and then you might expect a little fewer ices on Io and Europa, whereas you'd expect a larger fraction of ices. Not no ices, just fewer ices, and a larger fraction on the outer, on the outer moons. Now, the orbital periods are very interesting. Io takes 1.8 days to complete one orbit around Jupiter. The next moon out, Europa, takes 3.6 days, exactly twice Io's period. Ganymede, takes seven point, the third moon out, takes 7.2 days to complete an orbit, which is exactly three time, uh, four times excuse me, Io's period. So the ratio of the period of Io, Europa, and Ganymede is exactly the ratios of one to two to four. What this means is Io will complete two orbits in the time it takes Europa to complete one, and Io will complete four orbits in the time it takes Ganymede to compute, complete one, or continuing along with math games, Europa will complete two orbits for Ganymede's one. These are examples of, of, a, of a resonance phenomenon. Now before, when we've talked about resonances, we've always talked about spin-orbit resonances. For example, the moon being locked in a one-to-one spin-orbit resonance with the Earth. It rotates once for every one orbit. Or the three-to-two spin-orbit resonance of Mercury around the Sun. Mercury completes three rotations for every two orbits. That's again a spin orbit resonance mediated by tides. This is the first example we have encountered now in the solar system of what is referred to as an orbital resonance or more specifically a mean motion resonance in which two objects orbiting a parent body, in this case two moons or in this case three moons orbiting Jupiter, know about each other's orbital periods. They're actually locked in a resonance. If one of them tried to speed up or slow down, the effect of the gravity of the other would actually bring it back into place. So you can actually lock into a resonance. You get what's called trapped in a resonance, in these mean motion resonances. And so the fact that Io, Europa, and Ganymede all have these commensurate orbits in the ratio of basically 1 to 2 to 4 tells us that these things evolved into that location. You cannot be born in that way. It's very difficult to be born trapped in a resonance. Well, what's happening? Well, what's happening, of course, is that Io 
to give an example, is very close to the planet Jupiter. And Jupiter's immense gravity is going to raise tides on Io. In fact, Jupiter's gravity is enough that it actually locks Io's rotation into a one-to-one spin-orbit resonance. Now, that locking means that as tides are raised on Io, similarly, tides by Io are raised on Jupiter. Jupiter is rotating faster, 10 hours in round numbers, than Io's orbit. And so just like the situation with the Earth, where the tides of the moon are slowly slowing down the Earth, and that extra energy goes into the moon and makes the moon move outwards a bit in its orbit. The same is going to happen here in the Galilean satellites. The tidal effect of Jupiter upon Io and Io back upon Jupiter is going to cause Io's orbit to migrate outwards due to the tidal interaction. As it moves outwards, it moves in such a way as its its gravity affects the gravity of Europa. Europa then moves out in lockstep. So once Io moves into the two to one resonance with Europa, Europa gets trapped in that. And then as Io moves out, Io and Europa move out in lockstep. As they move out in lockstep, they eventually reach the point where Europa and Ganymede come into their two to one, and hence Io to Ganymede four to one resonance. And now all three inner moons are trapped, moving outwards very, very slowly with the tidal influence of, of Jupiter. So Jupiter's tidal influence on Io, Europa, and Ganymede, which falls off a great deal fast. Of course, there's less tidal influence on Ganymede because it's far away, works to have trapped all three of these inside these resonances. Callisto is the only one that's exempt. right? If, if, if this was to follow the two-to-one pattern, I would have expected a two-to-one pattern of Ganymede to Callisto. I would have predicted 14.4 days for its orbital period. But in fact, its orbital period is 16.7 days. So while Io, Europa, and Ganymede are trapped in this multiple resonance, slowly, tidally moving out, Callisto is still a free agent. It's still orbiting around, remembering where it was, but it hasn't evolved that much. But given time, eventually, as these orbits grow, the orbit of, of Io, Europa, and Ganymede are going to slowly drift out. And at very distant future, this is going to be sort of billion-year kind of timescales, Ganymede is eventually going to reach where its period is no longer 7.2 days. It gets progressively longer as it moves out. Eventually, it's going to be 8.35 days. And when it's 8.35 days, it will suddenly come into 2 to 1 resonance with Callisto. And Callisto will then join the group. And then all four will move out together, locked into commensurate resonance. So this is the first example we've seen so far in the solar system of a mean motion resonance. They're very, very powerful. It's an example of how gravity interactions dictate what an object's orbit is. It can't just have any orbit. It actually gets locked into certain orbits because any perturbation, anything to cause it to speed up or slow down, gets counteracted by the gravity of the other objects. And so this becomes, if you will, a shaping mechanism, a way in which it tells us why certain periods appear the way they do. Now, in the old days, people would have looked at this if they didn't have any knowledge of gravity, if they'd known about the moons of Jupiter. They probably would have been, Pythagoreans would have just loved this. Look, whole number ratios. They loved whole number ratios and harmonies. Here's a sign of harmony in the heavens. But it's not mystical numerology. It's the action of gravity over very, very long scales of time. This tells us, again, this is part of this piece of evidence. The solar system is very, very old. You need time for these kinds of processes to work. Now, oh, I probably should mention one other thing. 
It's easy to know the order of the, of the Galilean satellites. Io, Europa, Ganymede, Callisto. If you want to never write down them in order, just remember the mnemonic, I eat green cows. So if you say, I eat green cows, Io, Europa, Ganymede, Callisto. It's a way you remember the order of these things. A little game we like to play. Let's look at the individual satellites one by one. They're very, very interesting worlds all by themselves, and they're extremely surprising. Now, when people had launched, when, when the scientists had launched the Voyager spacecraft and the Pioneer spacecraft out to Jupiter and later on to Saturn, they expected that maybe it would be interesting to see what the surfaces of these objects look like. What they pretty much expected, however, most of them anyway, was that the surfaces would be old, ancient, and cratered. Because even though the biggest of these moons is 5,000 kilometers, these things are five astronomical, out, astronomical units out from the sun. That means they're getting 125th in round number, 125th the sunlight of the Earth, so they're going to be very, very cold places. They expected they would have sort of dirty, icy surfaces, but they would be heavily cratered throughout. Boy, were we surprised. This is Io. Io is the innermost moon of the Galilean satellites. Um, one of the things you don't see on the surface of this is a lot of impact craters. In fact, it looks kind of like a pizza that's been left out in the sidewalk for a while. For a lot of people, when the first color pictures came back from Io in 1979 from Voyager 1, it was called the Pizza Moon. Now, you may remember about a week or so ago, I said that the one and only time I ever played hooky from school was when the local PBS station in 1979 was showing the brand new data from, from Voyager from, from Jupiter. And I, I skipped out. Uh, I was a senior at high school at the time. And so I skipped out. I did get in trouble for that, by the way. I did get called to the principal's office where I wondered where the hell I was. Sort of prominent when the person shows up every day is there. Well, this was the picture, or not this exact picture, but one very much like this was what basically glued me to the TV in 1979. Um, this was absolutely stunning. And the scientists were just, just falling all over this. They just couldn't figure out what the hell they were looking at. And neither could the rest of us. I mean, it was just an amazing picture. This moon looked like nothing we had ever seen anywhere in the solar system. Now, the reason why it has no craters is that tells you right away its surface is geologically very young. That's not expected. This is a tiny little planet. In fact, it's a tiny little moon. It's smaller than our moon. And our moon has been geologically dead for about three and a half billion years. This thing's got a fresh surface. The coloration there is not fake color. It really is yellowish orange. The reason sulfur on top of ice. This is basically a volcanically active moon. It, in fact, is the only volcanically active moon in the sense of like an Earth volcano. It's spewing molten sulfur out of its interior. Now, where does it get its heat? This thing should be cold and dead geologically by comparison to things like Mercury and Venus. And even Mars is geologically dead. Mars is bigger. And the answer is it doesn't have internal heat left over from its formation nor does it have a large reservoir of radioactive materials like on Earth and Venus, but what it does have is it's being tidally heated by a double whammy. It's getting stretched and squeezed by Jupiter because it's very, very close to Jupiter in its orbit, and it's in a two-to-one resonance with Europa, and every time Europa comes by, it gives it an extra tweak, a little bit of a stretch and a squeeze. Well, if you ever take a tennis ball and rhythmically stretch and squeeze, stretch and squeeze, stretch and squeeze, what happens? That tennis ball warms up. It's exactly what happens with Io. Io is basically being stretched and squeezed rhythmically for thousands of millions of years. And so as a consequence, its interior get, heats up and it gets molten. And so what these volcanoes spew 
are two compounds that become liquid at relatively low temperature, silicates and sulfur. It's not like volcanoes on Earth where the temperatures are high enough to give you molten iron as well. Volcanoes belch out a lot of iron-rich material as well. But these are a little bit lower temperature. It's not hot enough to melt iron, but it is hot enough to melt silicates and sulfur. And so these are silicate-sulfur volcanoes. So it belches out mostly sulfur compounds. Silicates are white. They're kind of clear and brownish, icky stuff. They look like rock. But sulfur is bright yellow, and that's what gives Io its really amazing color. But if that wasn't more, not only has it been volcanically active in its past, it's actively volcanic today. And in fact, there are at any given time as many as four or five active volcanoes going off all the time on the planet Io. These little funny little patch features of dark stuff surrounded by these sort of hoof prints here, hoof prints-like shapes, that is an active volcanic plume. In fact, on this particular picture, there's an active volcanic lake there, and there are one, two, and a third active volcanoes just in this sector alone. And there's two more on the other side of the planet at the time this picture was taken. Not only is Io volcanically active, it's the most volcanically active place in the solar system, and included in that is the Earth. This is even more volcanically active per surface area than the Earth has been since er the earliest times of its history. Here's a, a couple of pictures here. There's actually two of these. You can see the change from April to September. These are pictures taken with the Galileo spacecraft in two sections of, of Jupiter, uh, Io. First of all, you can see that this plume has changed size. It's actually grown outwards and filled in a bit. This little black spot here has suddenly erupted and is beginning to spray out some black stuff. After the black stuff is when the yellow sulfur compounds start coming out. And then down here, you can see this region here, this plume has started to trail off and it's starting to get into lighter material coming off. More spectacularly, you can see the edge of the planet here. You can see this lighter material that looks like pools of stuff in between ices. This, in fact, is the ice or snow covering. Even though it's volcanically active, you've got to remember, this thing is still a Jupiter. It's still really cold there. And so ice is condensed on the surface. But there you can see one of the plumes appearing over the edge of the planet. The materials spewing up, volcanoing out, and just fountains out, and then lands in this kind of dome shape. Now, part of the Voyager 1 passage is an interesting story about the way science sometimes gets done in unexpected ways. When people were going by Io, they, they were really thinking, wow, what the devil's going on here? And there was lots of speculation about what those features were, but no one was really sure what was going on. Actually, that's not quite true. The, the guy who was actually to become my... my undergraduate advisor, a guy named Peter Goldreich and company, had actually predicted that tidal heating of Io might cause active volcanism. But no one paid too much attention to that paper. So that was part number one. Someone made a scientific prediction based on observations of the, of the object, and people said, nah, that's too far-fetched, Peter. That can't possibly work. Um, but it got published anyway, because you never know when ideas are going to turn out to be good. Well, the other one was, what they did was to navigate the spacecraft made some minor course corrections as they cruised by, because they wanted to visit as many of these moons as they could and get the, get the spacecraft on a slingshot out to Saturn. So they had to really fine-tune the motion of the spacecraft. They did mid-course navigation to find out where they were. The way they did it was to take really deep images so they could see the background stars, and they did celestial navigation. You could tell which stars you're looking at in what direction. But when you took a deep image, to see the background faint stars, you naturally saturated and burned out 
the image of the planet. And so the way they figured out is a really clever way to navigate is you navigate the stars relative to a horizon on the Earth. So what horizon do you use when you're a spacecraft? Well, you use the limb of the moon because we know its orbit very well. So when you see certain stars disappear behind the limb, you knew exactly the relative positions in space of the Voyager spacecraft and the planet and the moon. Really clever way of doing navigation. So they burned this thing in. They had a whole team full of technicians whose job it was to look at the navigation pictures. And one of the navigation moons that was used during the close pass on Io, of course, was Io. Look back at Io, burn it in, and watch how Io blocks stars as the spacecraft goes slinging by. Well, there was a young technician named Morimoto who noticed there was this really odd flaring on the limb of the planet because the planet was burned out to see the stars, but she noticed this really faint plume feature and was the person who actually discovered Io's active volcanism. She recognized there was something on that image that wasn't supposed to be there. And so while there was a room full of scientists who were staring at the good picture, she looked at the one picture and made the connection. You know, that, that fountain plume isn't supposed to be there. That's not a normal feature. That must be on the moon itself. That must be important. This actually caused a bit of consternation and embarrassment, somewhat not very nice embarrassment, unfortunately, and some sarcastic comments came out of the scientists. This is now known in astronomy as the Morimoto effect, basically the discovery of an important phenomenon by the person who's actually paying attention rather than the lead investigator on the project. So you never know where the science can get done. You never know where the discoveries are going to come from. In this case, it came from a person who was doing their job. She was not a trained astronomer. She was basically just a navigation scientist. But she knew enough to pay attention that something doesn't look right. I should bring that to someone's attention. And in fact, it was the discovery of Io's active volcanism. Europa. When Europa came, people were really said, wow, Io's great. Let's look at Europa. Europa, Europa was really boring. I mean, it was known to be very bright to start with when, beforehand because people could measure its brightness from the ground. And they knew its surface had to be pretty shiny because it, it seemed to reflect a lot of sunlight. And so the speculation was that Europa was covered in ices. Probably dirty ices, but ices nonetheless. And ice, as you know, is very shiny, right? Snow is a lot more reflective than sand. Sure enough, Europa is an ice ball. But again, big surprise here, where are the impact craters? This is supposed to be an ancient, cold, tiny surface. Where are the impact craters? Well, there's one right there. And there's an old one, kind of, but it's devoid of impact craters. This is a young surface. What the heck? Right? It's not obviously volcanic. It's too far out. Europa is the second one out from Jupiter. It's, it's in a motion, mean motion resonance, so there must be some tidal heating, but it's not going to be enough to cause silicates and sulfur to melt, obviously. At least not, well, not obviously, maybe. Um, but the surface is smooth. This thing is like a dirty billiard ball in shape with only a handful of impact craters. Insight number one, this is an extremely geologically young surface. In fact, what this is, is actually a layer of ice covering a heavy rocky core. We can measure the mass of this moon very accurately with the spacecraft passage. You can measure its density. But you find that it's an ice covering a rocky core, so it built up a silicate core during its formation, and then accumulated layer upon layer of ice as the planet formed. Now, it's very, very smooth and very, very young, but if you look carefully, at the surface, the surface is actually fractured. You end up with rafts and flows, things that look like arctic polar ice, 
where it gets broken up by the pressure of the stuff around it. So instead of forming one big piece, it busts into gigantic rafts and flows. Some of those rafts and flows break loose to form icebergs, for example, on the Earth, in the liquid water oceans of the Earth. But this is all of a piece. So it's a kind of tectonism. It's kind of a brittle surface that breaks up into structures. But the reason why it's so smooth is, as those structures rub against each other, they break open fissures and liquid water from the interior can geyser out and flow out over the surface, repaving that surface. So it's kind of like a volcanism, except on Earth the volcanism is liquid silicates and iron, lava, flowing up and rebuilding rocky crust. On Europa, we see a frozen analog of that. In the same way that polar ice stays smooth, as fissures open up in the ice when it gets warm, Water geysers up out of the fissures, and then it fills out and refreezes on the surface where it's cold, and you repave the surfaces. If you get an impact crater, it gets slowly but surely filled in. Here's a close-up taken for the Galileo spacecraft. This is a gorgeous picture showing these ice rafts breaking apart and the fissures in between on this immense ice moon. In fact, this picture was shown in a geologic conference, I was told, and everyone thought that the picture came from the Earth's Arctic because it looks very much like aerial photographs of ice flows in the Arctic Ocean during the wintertime. Well, if this repaving has gone on in the recent geologic past, is the surface below Europa actually got liquid water today? Does Europa, in fact, have liquid water deep hidden beneath the surface? There are two basic ideas that have been proposed. We don't know yet how to test between them without going back to the, pl to the, to the place. The basic structure of Europa is it's big enough to have, have differentiated, so the metals and iron and stuff would have sunk to the bottom, the silicates would have floated to the top, and then you would build up above this metal core and rocky interior a thick layering of ices, many, many hundreds of kilometers thick. The estimate of the depth of the ice layer on the surface of Europa is between one and two hundred kilometers thick. Now, the surface stuff will be relatively brittle and solid, so it will break up into raft flows, but one idea is, in fact, that the thing is ice all the way down from the surface all the way down to the, the rock layers. Now, the weight of all this ice pressing down on these layers raises the temperature on the ice, but ice under pressure will actually freeze at room temperature. So it's possible to get pressure freezing, so it stays in a frozen slushy form, but it will do a very slow convection. It will be warmer at the bottom, cooler at the top, and so you get a slow liquid boiling motion. Just like the silly putty consistency rock in the Earth's magma produces the convecting currents that drive plate tectonics on Earth, so too it's been argued that slow convection currents in kind of a mushy ice layer below the surface of Europa can actually give rise to the lateral stresses that break open the rafts and cause material to bust through to the surface. Well, that's one idea. The other idea says that ice can freeze under pressure, but what if, in fact, there is an internal source of additional heat because of the tides due to that two-to-one resonance with Io and a bit of tidal heating from Jupiter? What if that extra heat is enough to actually melt the ice below the surface and make it liquid? So the other idea is, in fact, Europa as a moon-wide deep ocean. 
It's an ocean anywhere from 100 to 150 kilometers thick, and the idea is that it is liquid water all the way down to the rocky core. So you can think of this thing as having gathered ice, but the heating from tides and other things has basically come together to liquefy the layer beneath the ice. So this looks more like the Arctic, where you have a layer of ice over a deep ocean. But in this case, the ocean is more than 100 kilometers deep. So in that case, the second picture is you end up with a metallic core over a rocky interior, but a liquid water layer. This would be the largest ocean per proportion of surface area anywhere on the solar system. And where there's liquid water and heat, well, on Earth, we find life. So this has led to a speculation that maybe if Europa really has a liquid interior, that it could be one of the places you might search for life. There have been two proposals, neither of which have been acted upon in terms of an actual design for a spacecraft yet. One is to answer the question of, is the ice solid all the way down or is there liquid beneath? And one of the ideas is a Europa orbiter that would use ground penetrating radar. In this case, ice penetrating radar, because the radar return you would get from a layer of ice over an ocean is different from a layer of ice that goes all the way down. The other possibility is that people have speculated as you land on the surface and you use devices that geologists use called thumpers to basically do seismology on the planet. That would also tell you the answer. If, in fact, it was found to have a liquid interior, one of the proposals is to build an ice surface penetrator that would launch a hydrobot. It's basically a submarine robot operated from the Earth, rather uh, under autonomous control, which could then dive beneath the ice and begin to search the surface. And of course, this artist has added a hot smoker vent from a small bit of you know, miniature thermal, thermal stuff coming up from below. And one of the interesting places we find life on the Earth is in the hot black smokers at the deep ocean basins where life shouldn't exist, but where there is heat and water, there is often life. And so the, obviously the person seeing this is speculating that this is a place where you might look for life. This hydrobot idea is not entirely crazy. We actually know of a lake frozen beneath ice. It's actually called Lake Vostok. It's in, it's in the Antarctic continent. It's a, it's a gigantic lake, which is very, very deep. It's many kilometers deep below the Antarctic ice. It's been water that's been locked off for, what, three, four hundred million years. And so actually there is a proposal to drill into Lake Vostok and release a highly sterile probe to see if in fact things have been living down there for the last few hundred million years, probably bacterial or algae type of things, down in Lake Vostok. So people are actually starting to think about how one might explore the oceans of Europa if in fact it's established the oceans of Europa exist. So really, again, a tremendous surprise. Europa was thought to be, oh, it's going to be a boring ice ball covered with craters. It may, in fact, be one of the other places in the solar system where we have the best chances to find life. You never know what you're going to find when you go somewhere or what the dividends of that exploration are going to be. All right, continuing our move outwards, we come to Ganymede. Ganymede is the largest of the moon in the solar system. It's more than 5,000 kilometers in diameter. Its density, however, is fairly low. It's about 1.9 grams per cc. Remember that rock like the Earth, is about three, three and a half, four grams per cc. Ice is a little less than one gram per cc. That's pure water ice. A typical snowball will actually sink. It's about a gram per cc. So if you have something that's intermediate between rock at three grams per cc and ice at one gram per cc, the mixture of them is going to have a somewhat lower density. 
So this density is going to be a very important diagnostic to us. It's going to give us an idea of what the rough composition is going to be like. If it's mostly rocky, it'll be up around 3 or 4 grams per cc. If it's mostly ices, it'll start approaching 1 gram per cc. That we see just shy of 2 grams per cc is telling us we're dealing with a rock-ice mixture. You take the dense rock, but you lighten the rest of the mass with low-density ice. And so what we expect for Ganymede, which formed further out from the other two moons, it's not as subject to tidal heating, so it's going to be much colder and older, is going to be a thick ice mantle over a rocky core. Now the first thing you notice is the surface of Ganymede is very dirty. It's covered with these odd-looking grooved terrains. So there was some kind of geologic activity, at least in the distant past, probably related to the cooling and formation of the planet. This is not ongoing geologic activity, but old-style vertical thrust faulting. The sort of thing we saw on Mercury as Mercury cools and wrinkles. The same thing is going to happen on Ganymede. As it cools and shrinks and wrinkles, as the planet solidifies, you're going to get this vertical tectonism going on. These grooves can be very deep. They can be 100 kilometers wide and about 300 meters deep. So these are very, very deep chasms that are formed as the planet wrinkles. But we can guess their age. They have to be around 2 billion years old. And that's judged by the number of impact craters that are on top of old grooves. So you can see an ancient impact crater that gets fractured by one of these grooves forming. But you can also see where a groove has been hit after it formed by an impact crater. And that lets you get a relative age. It's approximate. I mean, it's going to be approximate to the few hundred million year level. But it lets you distinguish a brand new feature from an ancient feature. But you do see impact craters. In fact, notice the impact craters here as the white spots. That's another clue that what you're dealing with is ice with dirty junk on top of it. While it, the weather hasn't quite been cold enough to be winter yet around here, today's pretty close, think about to previous winters where you get a fresh snow, false snowfall by the road. It's all nice and pretty and white, and it looks pretty good, and it's very aesthetic. And then give it about three or four hours later of buses passing by on the road and spitting up road salt, what happens? Well, the snow gets this sort of black layer of ick on top of it. In fact, the snow on High Street gets really, really black and ugh, ugly. So imagine, however, you took that icy black covering of varnish on top of the snow and you whacked it with a hammer. What would you get? Well, you'd bust through the varnish layer and you'd bring up fresh snow and spray it out over the surface. So if you had a dirty varnish layer and a meteor impact hits it on the moon, it's going to bring up fresh ice, melted, and then it's going to fall back in and freeze again. And so you get pristine, shiny, white ice on top of the old, varnished, nasty surface. Well, that's exactly what you see here on Ganymede. Ganymede has got kind of this old, varnished, nasty surface, all the sort of yick and gunk and carbonaceous junk that it picks up over three and a half, four and a half billion years. But every now and then, a meteor smacks into it, busts through the varnish layer, and brings up fresh ice. This is another piece of the clue that this is a thick ice mantle over on top of a silicate core. Here's some of the grooved terrains you can see on Ganymede. And you can see this place where the craters actually are on top of the grooves. But there are also places where you can see the shadows of ancient craters where the grooves have destroyed them. So it's telling you it's relatively recent geologic activity, but not for the last two billion years or so. So unlike Io and Europa, which are active to the present day, they have young, virtually uncratered surfaces. Ganymede's activity shut down about 2 billion years ago. And we can tell that by seeing the tremendous amount of cratering 
and the fact that the cratering actually covers these groove features. And then, of course, we go to the outermost of the moons. We're much further away from Jupiter. Tidal heating is completely ineffective. And so now we expect that we're going to see virtually no geologic activity, a lot of virtually no geologic activity. So I expect this to be among the oldest surfaces. And indeed, that's exactly what we expect. This is an old, ancient, heavily cratered surface. This was what we expected to see when we went out to Jupiter. Io and Europa were active. Ganymede kind of intermediately active, but Callisto, this is the expectation. It's an ancient surface that has probably been completely inactive for the last four billion years. It bears the scars of the last epoch of heavy bombardment plus the additional bombardment of the extra junk that hung out around Jupiter. The craters are very bright with clean ice, especially on the recent ones. You can see all these bright spots. Again, busting through that surface layer of carbonaceous varnish and gunk on the ices, bringing up fresh ices from below. The density is much like we saw over on Ganymede. It's about 1.8 grams per cc, which again is telling us we've got a layer of ice on top of a silicate core. We're lightening up the planet as a consequence of having a large amount of ice. This thing grew a tremendous mantle of ice during the course of its formation out in the outer reaches of the proto-nebula of Jupiter. Here's a look at the surface that really shows you Look at the dirty ice here. You can see an impact crater and you can see the spray of fresh ice, but look at this beautiful picture from Galileo. You can see the fresh ice is just poking above the surface and these plains of dirty ice around there. You know, I see this and I think about, you know, snow by the roadside of High Street three days after a snowstorm. It's exactly what this looks like. It's a layer of varnish and carbonaceous junk on top of the ice. It's a really beautiful picture. All right, let's step back a little bit and review what we've just seen. If I look at Io and Europa, they're the innermost moons of the Galilean satellites. They have mean densities of 3.5 and, and 3 grams per cc. This stuff is rock, for the most part, with a very, very thin layer of ice on top of it. Io, in fact, has a rocky crust. There's very little ice except for maybe a surface smoking of ice on top of it, a molten mantle, and active volcanoes. Europa has an icy surface, but a rocky core, and that lithosphere, that crust, if you will, may be liquid underneath. Ganymede and Callisto, on the other hand, are much lower density. They're going to be an icy, rocky mixture. And as a consequence, they have deep ice mantles over the icy cores. They formed far away from Jupiter. They don't have as much tidal heating, and they're going to be geologically inactive. And in fact, as I go outwards from Io to Europa, Ganymede to Callisto, I get colder and colder, and I get less and less geologically active. The interiors are going to look something like this. Rocky interiors, maybe an ocean, and then rock with ice mantles on top of them. In fact, Callisto may not even be differentiated at all. But the important part is the interior heat. In the terrestrial planets, our interior heating comes from the planet's size. Big planets are hot, small planets are cold. In the outer solar system, it's tides that make the difference. You're going to be cold, but if you're in a tidal squeeze and stretch zone, you're going to heat up. The energy source is tidal heating from Jupiter and to a lesser degree from the orbital resonances. Look for this as we move into the outer solar system. We're now going to be ready to be surprised by looking for other geologically active bodies heated by tides. I'll see you all tomorrow.